0: Hello and welcome to the podcast, Terrorism and Political Violence, a podcast produced by the journal Terrorism and Political Violence in collaboration with Utrecht University. This podcast is comprised of two types of episodes. In issues up close, editors of the TPV journal will discuss a range of subjects from prominent issues covered by the journal, such as the history of terrorism, its causes and consequences, questions concerning political violence, and major global trends and threats. In our Book Talks episodes, editors will host conversations with experts from across the field to discuss their current work. Today's Book Talks episode is hosted by editor Geoffrey Kaplan. He had the pleasure of interviewing the founding editor of the Journal of Terrorism and Political Violence, David Rappaport, on the latest edition of his book, Waves of Global Terrorism, from 1879 to the present. We hope you enjoy this episode.
1: All right. Um, First, I want to say what an honor it is to be doing this podcast. Um, David Rappaport, as everyone knows, is one of the founders of the study of terrorism and was the very first to understand the importance of religious terrorism. He has personally been a great mentor to me. It's been, this year is important um, because he probably doesn't know, but this is the, it has been exactly 30 years since um, we first met. He published my first article in terrorism and political violence when I really wasn't sure I was good enough to do articles in terrorism and political violence invited me to my first international conference and has been a mentor for these 30 years. And so this is a great honor to be talking about his book and his work. So David, um, with that introduction, the new book is Waves of Global Terrorism from 1879 to the Present on Columbia University Press. It'll be coming out in a couple of months, but Before talking about the book itself, I wanted to go back a little bit on the background, what led to the book. Some of your earliest articles on religion and violence were really quite groundbreaking. There was Moses, Charisma and Covenant, there, Terror and the Messiah, which um, was one of the great influences on my work as, as it developed and messianic sanctions for terror. Before that, you did assassination and terrorism. I think that was 1970 or 71. And so my first question really is, what brought you to link religion and terrorism and to begin that study? Um, What I was doing
2: uh, was teaching a course on politics in in the Bible, and uh, it uh, occurred to me uh, that the Bible had many many scenes of terrorism, and in fact, God uh, uh, generated or stimulated or um, encouraged uh, terrorist acts. So um, that uh, made me look at uh, religions, uh, the history of religions, uh, and, um, uh, and I discovered the Abrahamic religions, uh, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam were uh, particularly significant
1: in generating terrorist activity. That's really where the book begins, with ancient terrorism. And the question I think that will strike most readers um, who aren't as familiar with the field is what distinguishes ancient from modern terrorism? Because in ancient times, there was no secular option. So any action, um, political, religious, political or whatever, um, had a religious background and a religious connotation. There was simply no separation between religion and the mundane
3: world. Yeah. That's true. And it is only... um,
2: Late in the eighteenth
3: uh, century, where secular terrorism became important what What
1: distinguishes modern terrorism from ancient terrorism, or is it the or is it exactly the same? Only the weapons and the times change?
2: No. Um, we have developed global terrorism since 1879. And um, the significance of global terrorism is that groups from all over the world participate in similar terrorist acts at the same time. That occurred starting in Russia in 1879. And um, Uh, there were political and technological reasons why that was possible. Uh, And um, before that, uh, secular terrorism uh, was confined to particular countries. And um, uh, generally, uh, it it was organized in the form of mobs, but... um, Starting in 1879, um, it was organized in terms of organizations, uh, which persisted for generations. Uh, And we have a generational phenomena with global terrorism um, and a new generation. grabs its purpose and, um, and persists for, uh, the, um, life of that generation and, uh, it, uh, disappears and a new generation takes its place. And we've had four generational terrorism, uh, waves, uh, since, 1879, uh, the anarchist wave, the um, anti-colonial wave, and the new left wave, and uh, now we are experiencing, and uh, the religious wave, uh, which um, uh, is beginning clearly to dissipate, and whether or not we have a, a Fifth wave is a question uh, I deal with in the last chapter of the book.
1: We'll talk a lot about the fifth wave, I think, because it is one of the few disagreements that we have. So it'll be, it'll be an interesting discussion. Before we get there, there is one group from ancient times that particularly fascinates me and I think other readers as well, and that is the Sikari. Um, they are credited often with being the having having um, invented modern terrorism as it's understood today. And they were quite effective um, for quite a while. If the is the is a would you agree that the Sikari are um, the progenitors of mo- the modern terrorist movements of today? Yes, but they did
2: not have immediate influence uh, on other terrorists at at the time. And subsequently, Uh, it's not until 1879 where the Sakari pattern was repeated in in world history
1: wouldn't the Hashishin, the assassins um, who carried out many of the same tactical innovations apparently um, having invented them themselves there seems to have been no contact or no knowledge of one group of the other and yet they followed the pattern the Taborites did the same
2: No, they didn't follow the pattern, the assassins were very limited in terms of their operations. They had one tactic, which was assassination. Uh, they were not indiscriminate um, as, as the Sakari were. Um, and um, that pattern uh, was repeated uh, in a number of groups. Right. Uh, with, uh involved uh a single tactic um the sakari had a variety of tactics and that was not repeated uh until uh the global terrorism
1: interesting very interesting what you, you're by background a political scientist. What led you to a theory like wave theory, which is so heavily based on historical patterns?
3: Um, I'm not sure, Um, but uh,
2: I was originally teaching political theory and political theory is concerned with history. And uh, I've always been concerned with the historical context of a particular activity. And um, I think it was uh, my academic uh, concerns uh, with history which led me uh,
1: to uh, terrorist history. Interesting. The, for our listeners who aren't as familiar, um, could you talk a little bit about what constitutes a wave? Um, certainly, it's international, but each of the four waves that um, you discuss has a precipitating event. It has specific tactics that are typical of the wave. What is it that constitutes a wave? Well, well what constitutes a wave is the
2: generation. Um, uh, normally, we think of classes and um, groups, uh, existing groups, um, which um, uh, are divided uh, by um, um, purposes. But um, and generation is a category uh, which is related to a particular um, time uh, when a, um, um, a um, people who were born roughly at the same time uh, Grab a political issue, and when they are uh, uh, over 40 years um, in action, uh, they simply uh, disappear uh, because they're too old and too, uh, um, and and the new group. uh, and uh, the new new, new generation uh, doesn't uh, follow um, the same purposes.
1: Sounds very much like Schlesinger's um, generational theory of American politics, which had forty years, yes, uh, and a forty year gap.
2: It, yeah, it does. And uh, I, um, um, when I talked about, the generational theory, I was concerned with the fact that very few people used it. Uh, They used class um, and uh, he was one of the person who, uh, one of the academics who did use it and uh, I was impressed.
1: It's interesting. You in in doing the field work, one thing you never meet and almost never hear of is an old terrorist. The generation yeah. theory is um, apt in a lot of ways. That when you're young, you can you can be a true believer. As you get older, you become disillusioned, and by the time you hit say 50, you're looking back and saying, "Well, we've made no progress. I have no family. I have no home." I have nothing. I've wasted my life. And if I can go back to mainstream society, I would. And if I can't, I'll try some other way to start over. But you, you rarely meet an old terrorist.
3: Yeah,
2: you're right. And that's certainly the argument that I make.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And there is a high mortality rate to it, too, to be fair. <laughs> it is hard to become an old terrorist to even get to the point where you can make a choice. Let's go to the anarchist wave, which is the beginning of it all. And you posit as a precipitating event um, the failed assassination by Vera Sasulic of the governor of St. Petersburg. And I guess the thing thats that I've always wondered is How does such an obscure event taking place in a relatively obscure place like Russia in the 19th century become the beginning of a global wave of terrorism? How does that happen? Who's even heard of it?
2: Well, uh, you, you must look at the politics of the European world. Uh, since the French Revolution, and you find uh, the spread of democracy uh, is terribly significant. And when violence occurs in one state, it frequently uh, is repeated in another, in in, in many other states in the 18th. 1848, and so forth. And Russia became part of the Western world, uh, though it did not have uh, a fully democratic state, although the Tsars, Alexander II, et cetera, um, did uh, make some efforts. To um, get rid of um, some of the class differences. Uh, They freed the the serfs in uh, one law uh, virtually overnight, whereas we uh, in, in the United States fought a four year war to free the slaves. But Russia was part of the Western world uh, in the sense that people were aware of it. And when terrorism broke out in Russia, uh, it was seen as a democratic movement. And uh, the democratic states, the uh, acceptably democratic states in Europe supported it. Switzerland, um, Belgium, France, and Holland uh, provided uh, much support. And that's why one of the reasons it became global. Of course, the second reason uh, um, the politics were shaped by the development of technology, which made uh, uh, communication quicker and easier, um, and you can't, I, I explain the global terrorism, uh, without, uh, the technological, uh, um, changes made by the industrial revolution.
1: Those are the, um, the, the mega context, if you will. It's like looking at the forest and the trees. And that's an excellent um, explanation of the forest. But the individual tree, in this case, Sasulich, and a failed assassination and a spectacular trial. Um, seems to have been the particular event. Um, how do we explain yep. that particular event caught the caught a global ima- the global imagination?
3: Well, um, because it
2: uh, was communicated quickly, and oh, because uh, it seemed to suggest that Russia was becoming uh, traumatized in uh, a very different
3: state. Uh, Mm -hmm. And um, um, I think that was, those were the reasons.
1: Something else that came out of it that I think when I teach terrorism um, that most shocks students that they they find hardest to accept is that from the time of the first wave, particularly Zasulich, who would say that I am a terrorist, not a killer. That being a terrorist was not a negative, um, you know, uh, term. It was a term of honor, and it was something that caught the imagination as something to aspire to by young radicals. That's absolutely true. And then lasted for 40
2: years uh, that uh, uh, conception and people who were were proud to call themselves terrorists. But in the anti-colonial way, uh, they realized uh, or they thought uh, that the disaster uh, which um, the first wave ended in um, um, was partly caused by uh, their adoption of the terrorist name for themselves. Uh, and uh in the second wave and afterwards, uh, they called themselves freedom fighters instead of terrorists, because terrorists had such nasty affiliations.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: It's getting ahead of our story a bit, but could you talk about the importance or how much impact Menachem Begin had on the yeah. use of language in terrorism? Yeah. Yeah, that,
2: that's true. Uh, he was the one who articulated this, but uh, basically uh, it was it occurred before he articulated it because the Irish uh, who, who uh, revolted uh, before the Zionists revolted called themselves soldiers and not terrorists. Uh, but they didn't talk about uh, this. Uh, uh, Begin actually articulated it and published uh, his view. Um, but uh, the Irish just simply called themselves soldiers.
1: Just in passing, you mentioned something that is really interesting and wanted to bring it up. Maybe you could talk about it a little bit, that terrorist waves often end in absolute disaster. As the first wave ended in World War One. the Sikari wave um, led very very quickly and very directly to the diaspora. I mean, ter- terrorist groups um, can have unintended consequences that they never imagined that were absolutely disastrous. Is, is that always the case? Well,
2: not always the case, obviously. In the anti-colonial way, uh, which the Irish uh, in the, uh, initiated, uh, although it was... Uh, a political transformation after World War One, uh, which is the great stimulus, um, uh, there were many successes. Uh, and uh, the anti-colonial wave actually was the most successful wave because the other waves uh, have limited very limited success, and may indeed um, have no uh, significant
1: ones. To close out the first wave, I'm sorry. Uh, to close no, out, I, yeah, to close out the first wave. Um, two elements or aspects come out of it that are, I think, important for the present day. One is the importance of women is not just support personnel but as leaders as ideologists as failed assassins um Zasulich Fenya Kaplan etc they're they're not the greatest shots but they are very influential yeah. in what they do and the importance of Jews in that wave yeah well
2: the women become important again in the third wave um, Jews uh, were significant and as a consequence the uh, Russian government um invented or created the Protocols of Zion, which is mm-hmm. a um a text uh which explains the Jewish um or or not explains, but manufactures the Jewish uh, attempt or plot to take over the entire world. And it becomes a significant part of anti-Semitism. Hitler used it uh, in part to uh, uh, create the Holocaust and um, um, uh, the uh, Arabs used it uh, in their uh, opposition to Israel and so forth. Um, but it was invented largely because the Jewish um,
3: experience in the first wave And the Russian wave was very significant.
1: Jews were very important in the first wave, certainly in the third or leftist wave. And to a degree with um, some of the groups in Israel, the settler movements and the Jewish underground in the fourth wave as well. But there's a much larger question here is. Jews have been attracted or become very active in radical movements, um, not simply terrorism, but radical movements in general in the 19th through the 21st century. Why is that? It's a difficult
3: one. Yeah, it's a difficult
2: one, and it's certainly not discussed uh, in the text, um, but um, I would imagine that the uh, reason was that anti-Semitism was very great and that led to Jewish uh, involvement in radical movements. Uh, but it is a question that I don't deal with. And uh, hmm. I, I, I don't think anybody else deals with
1: it. <laughs> That's right. I really don't. <laughs> That's for sure. I thought I'd give you the opportunity if you wanted it, but we will let it pass. <laughs> Let's go on to the second well, wave. I'm sorry. We, go ahead.
2: You should have warned me, and I would have thought about it.
1: Ah, uh. Next time for the next podcast, we can we can actually focus on that because it's it is an interesting and not very well developed or discussed question. But um, when we are going to have two? I'm maybe in in Arabic <laughs> terms, inshallah, if God wills, I hope so. <laughs> yes. Let's go on to the second wave before we think about the a sequel to the podcast. Um the yeah. second wave is probably the least discussed and least documented, if you will, of the four waves. Um, mm-hmm. they, it's kind of skipped over in classes on terrorism. And it's it's really surprisingly little talked about compared to the other three. Um, part of that possibly because it took place in a, in a specific historical context in a colonial world where there wasn't great. Um, press or great media coverage of it. But it was yet quite interesting. Um, The question that comes out of it is, how is it, let me put this well, the difference in the second wave between terrorism and insurgency is often quite blurry. Would you agree with that?
3: Um. Yes, I would.
1: Was it then really a terrorist wave per se, or was it much more an insurgent wave?
2: I think it was much more insurgent because there were a number of significant restraints. Uh, for example, uh, they never. Um, uh, attack civilians uh, yeah, directly. Uh, they went after police and the military. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, also, they refused to uh, go to uh, the home territories of the colonial powers.
3: Mm-hmm. Uh,
2: they were very
3: restrained. And um uh, it uh, does think uh, that I, I,
2: I do think that it's uh, more of an insurgency uh, than terrorist wave. But you know, there were terrorists there, and. Uh,
1: <laughs> And okay, how would how do you explain the failure to attack the metropole or to operate in the colony in the colonial capitals themselves? Um, I think
2: they were concerned about the implications and the involvement of uh, the. Uh, Home territories. There was significant uh, um, approval of uh, the dissolution of the empires in colonial territories after World War One, and uh, certainly after World War Two, uh, the peace treaties. To, suggest that clearly and um, I think that uh, that attitude uh, of favorability would have been turned around if uh, terrorists were to go to the home territories and uh, Uh, The political difference in the two waves are very clear, uh, and uh, I don't think uh, it would be difficult to understand them.
1: A good way maybe to end the discussion of the second wave would be the IRA in particular. Um, how, How do you explain a group that simply outlives the wave? Um, it, it carried on well into the third wave and into the fourth wave as well.
3: Well, um, in the Irish case,
2: of course, you started with success. And uh, um, they had a limited failure in the um, Northern Ireland And uh, I think they just continued uh, to uh, uh, want to complete their success. Um, And um, as the waves change, they simply took the tactics of the new wave. Um, But uh, I don't think there's any uh, pattern uh, which matches the Irish one, um, the partial significant success and, and a limited failure.
1: It's interesting that a handful of groups always do survive, um, whether it's the IRA or ETA, um, or others around the world that most die out, um, and, and a new wave begins. There's always a, they, one doesn't simply end and another one begins. There's always one flows into the other and change yeah. and adapts, which is fascinating. And yet in that change, most of the terrorist groups of the previous wave simply disappear from the board. A few survive, right. adapt, etc. And how that
3: happens is... Fascinating and very little studied, really. Um, I'm not sure how to answer that question. Mm -hmm.
2: Um, And I think it has to do with generations. Uh, As a new one uh, emerges, the old one, it's disappearing, but they overlap.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: The third wave is something that is always much more fun to teach, um partly because you and I remember it quite well, <laughs> so it's it's nice to have the personal experience but the i I think the thing that makes it almost a nostalgic wave is that terrorism really was theater and Theater was not about producing body counts. Theater was about a media spectacular. Um, Somebody like Leila Khalid could help to hijack six planes at once to Jordan, and nobody gets hurt. Um, They they were very careful about that. So how how do you explain this difference uh, in the third wave that was really so careful of human life as opposed to the others?
2: Well, first of all, publicity was a significant feature in the first wave, Uh, and it caused terrorism propaganda by the deed,
3: Mm -hmm.
2: and uh, that became more significant
3: again in the third wave, Uh, and um, um. Uh, and, uh, and I don't
2: know why it became more significant in the third wave, but it did become more significant in the third wave.
1: The first wave didn't have the advantage of being able to tailor an event for the evening news cycle, which... The third wave did. You did something so you'd get on the six o'clock news, which meant you had to time the operation in the early afternoon. (laughs) So you you had to make that news cycle, but there was none in the first wave. Yeah.
2: I forgot the reasons that I
3: gave.
1: Uh, I think that was part of it. (laughs) But I've read the text quite freshly, so um, I remember it well. Something that really wasn't mentioned as much in the text, but I'm wondering if this perception is correct. The influence of Russia in the third wave was much more marked in the European groups than in the American in a lot of ways, logistics, support, um, safe territory, training, that sort of thing, which was completely non-existent. Um, for the North American groups, is that a is that a is that a correct analysis, or am I am I completely off?
2: No, it, it is correct analysis, and the geography uh, I, I think is the
3: main reason.
1: That would explain a lot—the geography and the Cold War, Yeah, well
3: it,
2: the. Europe was closer and um, uh, its involvement uh, in Russian involvement was more effective
3: and uh, um, more uh, efforts were
2: made, although actually in the third world, uh, they were more affected, I think, mm-hmm. but the efforts were more significant in the um, in the European world.
1: Yeah, something that you bring up both in the book and throughout your writing is that until. Quite recent years, terrorism has been a peripheral phenomenon and um, little studied, little documented, little effect until really quite until really the time of the four waves and really quite recently. And now it's become, especially after 9/11, um, the central focus of government, the central focus of security policy, and the like. So. The study of terrorism, which you pioneered, has exploded. Um, when mm-hmm. I got my Ph.D., I think there were there were maybe a dozen recognized terrorism scholars in the world. After 9/11, there were a dozen at every university campus. It seemed mm-hmm. <laughs> suddenly everybody was a terrorism expert, and the four the four ways was very much part of that. For in the third wave to end here. Um, Vietnam became the central focus and in many ways the precipitating event. And yet it was a it was something that involved the United States and to a very limited degree its allies and doesn't seem to have been something that would be a global issue as Korea was not. Um, in terms of terror in terms of inspiring terrorist groups or terrorism, why was Vietnam in particular so impactful? Well, there were revolutionary
2: movements uh, in the third world uh at that time, uh, Castro in Cuba, for example, and many parts of Latin America, and uh, they became connected uh, to the uh, Vietnam War uh, in the sense that uh, there were um, conferences of these groups which the Russians, uh, uh the Soviets uh, helped stimulate as well. Um, and that's the reason uh, the Vietnam War was so important. It was uh, considered part of the Cold War. And uh, uh, the Russians had allies over uh, the Third World considerably. Which uh, European groups uh, sympathized with and uh, uh, helped
1: in a number of ways. The global event that began the fourth wave, the Iranian Revolution, had an even greater impact. And it's hard to explain to students now why that would be, why it it was so great. But I remember in, I was in Iran at the time, as the revolution was building. And the idea that the imams, Imam Khomeini's ideas um, could shake the Pahlavi dynasty, was something that was considered a fantasy even by his greatest admirers, and it seemed only that an act of God could have made the revolution successful. This idea of God being behind um, terrorist movements, behind the Iranian Revolution, what followed the wave of violence throughout the Middle East, um, Saudi Arabia, Pakistan, etc., could only have been um, a, literally an act of God because the powers that were the powers that were in charge at the time and the global power that supported them, the United States, seemed unassailable. Is that a correct? Were, yeah, and they were also secular. Absolutely. Is the charge? That the war on terrorism that came out of 9/11 and the fourth wave, that that is in fact a war on Islam by another name, is what kind of impact? You know, there's no doubt that there is that perception in the Islamic world. What is the impact
3: in terms of terrorism? Uh, well it it spread um, the it, the impact is it
2: spread terrorism throughout the Islamic world and uh, um, it became uh,
3: anti-western um, because of the United States. Uh, I, I don't know if that's an adequate explanation.
1: it's a, it's a, it's an important part of the explanation, I think. the mm-hmm. and, but you you saw the fourth wave was truly a global wave in that it wasn't simply Islam. You saw it in India with the Sikhs. You saw it oh, in yeah. other regions as well. And the idea that religion and the religious wave is almost a revolt, not against the powers that be or against states, but against a time, against a zeitgeist of turning away from God, of being of secularism and separation. But but the religious wave
2: is also anti other religions and uh, it's uh, not the religious groups um, from Christianity and uh, the Sikhs and the Jews don't cooperate with each other. Uh, They're hostile to each other. And in fact, uh, this is the first time uh, that religious and uh, that uh, terrorist groups were active against each other.
1: And yeah, that's, before that's very important. Just in yeah. in terms of sectarianism, um, the, yeah. the one thing that you saw in the wake of the Iranian Revolution is that for a brief shining moment, Shia and Sunni came together and Iran became yeah. for a moment um, terrorism central, yeah. but they say the sectarian gulf was too great. It lasted a very short time, and they turned on each other. Yeah. But yeah, no. it's very interesting. The last question I guess I have on the fourth wave is a disagreement that we've had over many years, I think, since the, um, the theory came out. the Every other wave has had this 40-year cycle um the one generation but is there any real indication that the religious wave will end in the
3: 2020s i think so um the you know the number of
2: attacks by religious groups has declined significantly and uh um there doesn't seem to be a generate uh it it doesn't seem to be generating uh, new groups uh Isis is gone basically and uh, all the significant
3: uh, religious groups are no no longer significant
1: the war on terror has had a has had a quite an element of success in terms of groups like ISIS or Al-Qaeda, et cetera. Yeah. And so to a degree that's true. Um, on the other hand, let me let me suggest a counter-argument, which is that the original the first three waves were secular. They had goals that could be met in historical time. That is um something that was political, achievable. And to a degree, many of them achieved those ends. But a religious conflict, as you've written since the 1970s, um, cannot be compromised. You can't compromise the word of God. And so the demands are absolute. And so the results, the outcomes must be absolute. You must either be destroyed or successful. There's no middle ground.
3: Yeah. Um, I agree. Okay. Yeah. That's certainly
2: uh, a theme in my discussion.
1: It is. It definitely is. Yeah. Let's conclude then with the fifth wave which has spawned a mini literature of its own. <laughs> yeah. I mean, how many of us have written fifth wave articles or fifth wave books? And I have a mea culpa on that as well. Um, But your you argue in your book that the fifth wave will be right wing. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Why that? Why that is, and why the right wing is not simply an undertow or an extension of the religious wave.
3: Well, the right wing.
2: Um, There there are political reasons uh, for the right wing, uh, and that involves largely immigration, um, but uh, also uh, anti-left movements. which is dominant in the European uh, world, and that, those countries which are come out of the European world, like uh, the United States and Australia, and so forth, um,
3: and. Um, um, They um, have been generating violence in uh, Europe and the European world um, largely
2: because it's anti-immigration, but also because of the left wing uh, dimensions which the, uh, um, countries, uh, have had, uh, like the European Union, uh, replacing, uh, the
3: national states in Europe, um, and, um, so
1: I'll leave it Is- over. Okay. Is it, I guess the last question then would be, is, was the right wing really constitute a global wave or is it purely Euro-American?
3: I think it's, uh, it comes out of the European
2: states. Um, that is, uh, those which are in uh, part of the European a world like the United States and Australia.
3: Um,
1: Will there be a right-wing movements outside of the West, in Asia, Africa, Middle East?
3: <laughs> that
1: I'm
2: not sure of, and that's one reason why I think we're not talking about a global wave hmm. uh, and um, but it's also true that I not investigated uh, the non-european world
3: uh, in in the text hmm.
1: and the text uh, to be fair, Um, To be fair to the work, the text actually talks a lot about non-European examples. Um, There's a lot about India, Pakistan, there's Africa, um, Latin America. So it's not a Euro-American text by any means. It is quite global.
3: Yeah, uh, but um,
2: it's not complete the study. study of the way
1: true that would be a multi a multi-volume set <laughs> and yeah. perhaps that could be the that could be the topic of the next podcast part two david thank you very much is there anything finally yeah. you'd like to add
2: no uh, your questions were good but i'm getting old
1: yeah as we are as we yeah, all are <laughs> yes i know
2: but wait till you get into mean 93. And, um,
1: that's true. That's true. But it's a, an academic generational wave theory too. Yeah. getting there fast enough. Thank you very yeah. much. Thank you. It was, a, it was you. a great experience. and a great book. Thank you: Thank you.
0: And that concludes today's episode. This podcast was brought to you by the Terrorism and Political Violence Journal, Utrecht University, and the Hub Security and Open Societies. The sound design was done by Peter Fein. For more information on this podcast series, including what to expect in the next episode, please check the description. For now, we thank you very much for listening, and please join us again for the next episode of Terrorism and Political Violence, the podcast.